I'd like to lead you in the reading of Ezra, Ezra chapter 3. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of, oh boy, uh, Jezadak, Jozadak, say it how you'd like to say it. And the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem began the work. They appointed Levites 20 years old and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers and Cadmiel and, and his sons, descendants of Hodavia. This is a great passage. Thanks very much, Karen. Uh, and the sons of Hanadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of the Lord. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the, the priests in their vestments with, their trumpet, with the trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord and prescribed as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of the weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, if you were here with us last week, uh, you may have had the enjoyment of hearing Peter, minister from Ryerson, share with us, which is a real delight. Uh, and he gave us a glimpse into the story of the life of Ryerson and this kind of thing that we're journeying with along the way. And just before we jump into the text, I wanted to be able to say that uh, some of you know this already, but over this week and next week in the life of our missional families, our leadership team is going to be popping in and sitting in uh, maybe a little bit as a spectator to be able to say, hey, we've gone through a lot of change. How has this been for you? And to be able to hear back uh, within our missional families to say, what's What's working and what's not working of an earlier Sunday service at this new space. So know that that's coming. Don't be surprised when a strange new face appears in your missional family. They, uh, they're good people. <laughs> so you, you have that to look forward to. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had said that we are in need of some more people to be able to serve with the kids here in our Sunday gathering. Uh, a few of us this week were trying to list out the number of people we could think of off the top of our head who have just had a baby or are about to have a baby or have just announced that they're going to have a baby in the near future. And we lost track. We could not number all those who qualify for that. So it is no surprise that we have need within our community for more people to serve a growing number of kids that we get to learn how to disciple. Thank you, because many of you, a whole bunch of you, signed up and said, yeah, I could do that. I could be part of that. Uh, and something we're doing as well with our missional families over the next couple weeks is kind of making known all the needs for our community because we just, we are growing. And so there's new opportunities to serve. There's a, a stat that might come up. Not sure what that means, but we'll, we'll roll with it. 
this will, this will highlight for us some of the needs for our community right now. Maybe it'll come up. We'll see. Um, but we wanted to be able to do that, to just to be able to say, oh, there, there, is, there is need. There is opportunity. So if you're into numbers, those are numbers. There's lots of need across the board. Now, just to be able to say, this is not for all of us. I just, there, I think there's a, maybe a few groups of people that should be considering helping out. One group, maybe, that shouldn't consider it are some of us, our lives are full, that we're already giving of ourselves in many different ways, and that you shouldn't see this and be guilted into thinking, oh, I need to do more. You take a pass on this. Some of us actually might be quite busy with our lives, and you think, oh, I don't know if I have time or space for that, but perhaps we are busy with the wrong things, and we just need to reevaluate what we give our time to. And then there, there might be some of us who are new enough to this community that you're still kind of on the edge, trying to decide, looking in, is this going to be the place that I call home? And I just don't think you're going to know whether St. Clair is home until you give of yourself and you serve within this community. And so stepping into one of these opportunities might actually be deciding factor for you and whether you call St. Clair home. Because life, maturity in the life of Jesus is this really important shift of seeing the world in terms of I, me, mine, to we, us, and our. Maturity in the life of Jesus is seeing our life to be given away, and we think in terms of not what do I get, but what do I give? So there's opportunity to give within our community. All right. Can we jump into our text? Can we do that? Okay. Oh, that's a rough start. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Empire, exile, the sounds of the kingdom. Uh, our timeline of Scripture, we've been going through the story of Scripture to remind us of who God has been to his people so we can know who God is to us and to answer the question of how do we live the way of Jesus, Hamilton 2019. Last week was Elijah and Elisha, and if you know the story of Scripture, it is a pretty dramatic jump to go to empire and exile. It's, it's like that first five minutes in Fellowship of the Ring where you're just getting blasted with history, and it's in, which... I watch every Christmas very faithfully, so I'm looking forward to that again this year. <sighs> so we don't have time or space to highlight the history of Israel. Um, here are some passages in Scripture that if you want to know more and you want to get sort of a snapshot view that within Scripture it's telling the story of God's people, here are some verses that you could have a quick read and get sort of a teaser of some of these things. But the point that we find ourselves in in the story right now is that God's people, the Israelites, they had lost their autonomy and they'd been dragged away to live under a foreign ruler in a foreign place. And then at the beginning of Ezra, we're told that the king of Persia, Cyrus, feels compelled by God 
this not, this, he's not a Jew, he's not a God-fearing person, but the king of Persia feels compelled by God to let the Israelites go and to go back to their land. It says in Ezra, the Lord moved the heart of King, uh, Cyrus, king of Persia, to build a temple for God in Jerusalem. So the people are sent back. They first rebuilt an altar and then this temple foundation. And the reason why this is so important, this is the first thing that they put their hand to when they're allowed to go back home, is that the temple for them was the constant reminder of God's covenant to them. It was the reminder, the physical, visible sign that God was present with them and for them. So it was their greatest work, and the first thing that they did was to rebuild the temple because they could not imagine life in Jerusalem without the presence of God with them. And so uh, as it was read for us, there came the moment when the foundation had been laid. It wasn't even like the whole temple had been resurrected, but the foundation was laid. It says, all the people gave a great shout of praise because the foundation of the house of the Lord was raised. And then as we heard it read, but the ones who had seen the old version before, they wept. They wept when they saw the new version because it did not compare to the old one. That there were people who were just jubilant and joyful that this is incredible. God is with us again. And we've got the reminder and you, it's, it's an incredible image where it's describing there's two sounds that are rising up with equal volume. There's joy, and there's praise, and there's exuberance, and there's every reason to be happy and to be excited and to be thankful. And then there's another half of people who are weeping, who are moaning, who are groaning, who are longing for the thing that they once knew to be made reality again, but they feel the gap on what this stands in front of them and what should be. And you just get this incredible description that even from far away, the noise was so loud of both, you couldn't figure out which was which. Joy and sorrow are just colliding over top of each other. And it's the, the people of God are seeing the same thing, but they're having two reactions, two longings, two hopes, two wishes for how God would be with them. And I, what struck me in this is that I think this actually gives us a glimpse of what the kingdom of God looks like. That it's, we live in a world that deals with either you're this or you're this. And we have this moment where we're seeing both joy and sorrow at once, at the same time, coexisting as the people of God. And there isn't really an indication that one is more right or more appropriate than the other. It just seems to be both. Somehow, it's both. We live, I think, I probably don't have to tell you on this. I think we live in a pretty divided world where there's very clear-cut, hard-drawn lines on how we define the world. Either you're this or you're this. I mean, I am an avid sports fan. And so 
to be a, to enjoy sports, you, you kind of have to claim allegiance to a team. If I said to someone, oh, you're a football fan, who do you cheer for? And if they said, well, you know, I, I like the Ticats and the Argos, you're like, you don't understand sport. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> or if I'm playing with my nephews, it's, it's always a, you know, you're, I don't know, you get into sort of these ridiculous modes and take on a personality, a character, and they're like, well, are you the good guy or the bad guy? Which, which one are you? You're, you're, you're either or. The world for a child is, is, is very appropriately black and white. But I, the way we move through the world maybe requires a little bit more nuance. And, and I think it requires a healthy wisdom to navigate this place that, where we've grown very skeptical of kind of what we see around us. I don't know about you. If someone comes to my door, uh, I grow very suspicious Someone I don't know. Yeah, people come to my door and I welcome them. Someone I don't know <laughs> who, who comes to my door. I am very suspicious and very quickly in, in maybe five seconds or ten seconds, I'm reading their body language. I'm interpreting their words because I'm trying to figure out what do you want from me. I, I'm suspicious of their intention. I, I want to sort of put them in a box or perhaps just keep them at arm's length I don't think it's that much of a stretch these days to think that many of our conversations, we look and we hear and we're watching and we're sort of inspecting people's words in conversation or perhaps online, and we're trying to decide whose side are you on? And we, we nitpick our words trying to say, well, are you this or either you're this? And we've grown skeptical of institutions defining our world for us. And so we get to draw the circle on what our world looks like and then decide who's in or who's out. And if you're not for me, then you have to be against me. It's, it's either or. We divide the world very easily into winners and losers. I think there's a social narrative going on that either you are the oppressed or you are the oppressor. You're the victim or victimizer. You're bullied or you're the bullier. You're either liberal or conservative. Either you watch Fox News or CNN. It, either Don Cherry's right or he's wrong. Maybe it's too soon. <laughs> We, we, we want to sort of make sense of the world and put people and things in their places so we can define the world as it fits us. But maturity in the way of Jesus, I think, goes a step further in removing some of these lines so that we do not see people as categories. Eventually, eventually, if we grow in maturity, we become less concerned with being right and more concerned with putting the needs of others before ourselves. Our primary concern becomes love. Giving ourselves away without the expectation of anything in return. 
the embodiment of the covenant of God that he has for us, I think lives in this both and territory. The ultimate expression of God's love of the gospel is loving our enemies, which is this great paradox. And that is the ultimate expression of the Christian faith. I think if, if the complexity of this both and kingdom reality is confusing or unsettling, I actually think you're, you're doing okay. I'm not, I'm not talking about sort of a moral relativism, but the identity that we've been given as the people of God that God placed upon Jacob is that he named him and he's, he named his people Israel, the people that struggle with God. And so we do not settle for easy answers or middle-of-the-road solutions, but rather we, as God's people, are made to be a creative minority, sort of a peculiar people who live in this world to show that another way is possible. That's what we're called to. We are called to fidelity, to be in faithful relationship to a God who's covenanted himself to us. The one who holds everything together so we don't have to. And yes, I believe all the answers lie in Christ, but we surrender ourselves to the mystery of Christ because we only see things in part, and he is the one that holds all things together. It, the, the great paradox of the Christian faith is that God in, in the incarnation came to be both God and man. That's the ultimate reality that we hold up, is that Jesus is the God-man. He is divine love expressed with skin on. Somehow, it's, it's both. It, it is a mystery. N.T. Wright says this. He says, the call of the gospel is for the church to implement the victory of God in the world through suffering love. Victory and suffering typically don't go together. It's either one or the other. Suffering is not the way to victory, but we hold up Jesus, who is the suffering servant who has conquered death. It is a great mystery that holds our faith together. We live in an upside-down reality in the way of the kingdom, that we find life in death, strength in weakness, in poverty we know God's riches, we know both joy and sorrow. There's a time for fasting and a time for feasting. We're living into solitude in the midst of community. There are many, many things that are both, 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 both. And in a, in a really divided world where we parsed everything out to be either or, Thomas Merton says it really well. He says, the, cure, the only cure for the angst of modern man is mysticism, is that we hold at the center this mystery of Jesus. As the world demands 
to know our position on things, but I think, I think what it actually desperately needs is to see our posture modeled on issues that are dividing everyone else left and right. And maybe we need to model this for the church first, so then the world can see how we love one another. There's this incredible moment in the gospel of John and John chapter 9, where the disciples walk by someone who's blind, and they say to Jesus, Jesus, this man is blind. Who's at fault? Is he the sinner, or are his parents the sinner? Because the blindness can only be the result of sin. And Jesus says, neither. It's not either or. He said, but this man is blind, so the works of God may be revealed. And then Jesus, with his craftiness, knows that it's Sabbath, knows that there's Pharisees in the mix, And it was a sort of added additional law to not make mud on a Sunday so that it would not be seen as work or as a Saturday, sorry, on the Sabbath. And so Jesus spits on the ground, makes a little bit of mud, wipes it on the man's eyes who's blind, and then says, go to that pool and wash yourself. He does. He sees. Everyone realizes, whoa, this is the guy that has always been blind. We've never not known him blind. Now he can see. Everyone's asking him questions. He's like, so who did this? What happened? He's like, I don't know. I couldn't see him. I was, I was blind. <laughs> and he's, he's getting pestered with questions. And so then the group of people that notice this take him to the Pharisees. Pharisees are like, whoa, 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 whoa. What's going on here? He says, well, I... I don't know, this guy came and said, he did this, he did this. He's getting questions over and over again. They drag the guy's parents in and say, okay, so what's the deal? Was, is this your son? Was he actually blind from birth? They're like, uh, yes. But he can answer for himself because they were scared of the authorities. There is this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Pharisees are exhausting with questions trying to figure this out. And this guy who is blind, who but can now see, says so kind of cunningly, he's like, you guys are asking a lot of questions. Do you you want to be his disciples too? And they're like, whoa, don't you say that. And then what, what he says that I just think is so good, he says, listen, I don't know who this guy is. I just know that one thing I know is that I was blind and now I see. That this guy could be a demonstration of the power presence of God. And I think as a church community, maybe that's what we need to hold on to a little bit tighter. That the sort of the either or paradigm of either complementarian or egalitarian, or you're, I don't know how much of you care whether you're pre-millennial, post-millennial, or are you Bible-believing or seeker-friendly? Are you affirming or non-affirming? Are you contemplative or are you charismatic? What if we, as a people, carried the posture to say, I'm, maybe I'm not totally sure, but what I do know is that the love of Christ trumps all those categories. What if that was our first response? in how we enter some of these things that divide people out. Let me leave with this. Jacques Ilal says this. He says, Christians were never meant to be normal. We've always been holy troublemakers. 
We've always been creators of uncertainty, agents of dimension that's incompatible with the status quo. We do not accept the world as it is, but we insist on the world becoming the way God wants it to be. The kingdom of God is different from the patterns of this world. As we go, I, we, we live in a very complicated and perplexing world. And I think all the more we need Jesus' promise when he said, I will give you a guide, a counselor, the Holy Spirit to be with you. We are able to sing aloud because there's good reason to praise. Maybe we will leave or we'll finish with a quietness. And I, I will invite you to pray a prayer that is on the daily for me. And that is a breath prayer of just Holy Spirit, fill me. Father, forgive me. We sang loud. Let's, in quietness, and if you're comfortable with it, just pray that prayer through a few breaths. Holy Spirit, fill me. Father, forgive me. You're welcome to hold out your hands if, if that helps. St. Clair, go in peace.